Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Greetings. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Rossafari Zoo News, your look at everything going on in the world of zoos, aquariums, conservation, and general animal weirdness. Uh, and now, for the first time ever, coming to you from the official Rossafari podcast nook. Okay, that doesn't sound very exciting, but it actually is. Um, so there has been a, a pretty cool thing going on where I have been bringing a lot of my music gear and podcast gear and all of that up to our place in Buffalo, where I'm, I'm spending more and more of my time here. And um, one of the rooms for, for a while now has had like my drum set in it, but a bunch of like old papers and stuff from the people that used to live here and everything. And I was finally able to get all of that taken care of and out of the room. And I moved a bunch of my music gear up here and I moved my podcast desk in here and everything. And it is slowly turning into an actual studio, which it's been a long time since I have truly had like a studio type of environment to work in both as a musician and uh, I've never had one as a as a podcaster. Um, and so I'm just I'm really excited about this development. And I'm sure once it's all done, I will be posting some pictures online because that is what we are legally required to do whenever we do anything exciting in the world nowadays. But yeah, when all is said and done, uh, my acoustic kit that I already have set up here will be mic'd and ready to record at the drop of a hat. My electric kit I brought up here and is already set up. And actually, I just used it to record drums for a new uh, parody song that you'll hear probably on next week's episode of Zoo News. So hopefully we're going to be getting back to, to bringing you more of those. Taylor and I have some ideas. So um yeah, it's finally set up where I can do all this cool stuff and store my instruments. And the room that I'm in is like this normal, I don't know, room? Like it's a room looking room. But then when you walk in off to the left, there's this little part that's kind of cut out and it's, it's a nook. That's, that's the best way to put it. And so I put a desk here and I have all of my recording gear over here and it's kind of like the control room in a studio, uh, but, but it's officially dubbed the podcast nook. And so I'm sitting here right now looking out the window at my yard and uh, recording in my new happy recording place. And I'm very excited about the podcast nook. So yay, I guess. Um, on a on a different note, speaking of looking out my window, I did mention that uh, I was going to start volunteering at Aquarium of Niagara this week. Well, I'm not. And the reason why is because we have a full-on blizzard going on up here in Buffalo. 
uh, out in our backyard. We've probably got a foot of snow right now and the potential for another foot to fall before this is all said and done. And in some areas, they have three or even four feet of snow. So um, things are a little crazy right now. The aquarium is closed. Uh, so I will be starting that journey, I think, in early February. But uh, it's on hold for now, which is sad, but also not too sad because it means I get to spend more time in my studio and in my new podcast nook. Yay! So all of that is very fun and exciting for me, and uh, hopefully for you too, because if not, I just bored you for the last four minutes and 13 seconds, 14 seconds, 15, anyway. Um, yeah, but so we're going to get to it. This episode features uh, one of those deep dives that I've been enjoying getting into more and more, um, this time on avian influenza, and you'll hear about that in the conservation news section. So without further ado, let's get to it! All right, so we're going to start off with some births this week, as we often do, and uh, we're going to start with some exciting news that I thought I was done reporting on for the year. A red panda cub has been born at Altina Wildlife Park in Australia. Red pandlet. The mother is named Ronnie, and at nine years old is considered fairly old for being a mother, especially a first-time mother, uh, but she has taken to the task readily, which is something that is not usually very common amongst older red pandas that are first-time moms. Uh, so that is really, really exciting news. So yeah, congrats to this facility, which is one that I haven't heard of before on this amazing birth. I'm, I'm excited to learn more about uh, not only the baby panda, but about Altina Wildlife Park in general. From what I've seen so far, it looks like a pretty amazing place. The Fort Worth Zoo has announced the birth of a lion cub, or lilac. Uh, this is an extra exciting birth, as the three lions at the zoo came from a wildlife facility in South Africa back in 2012, meaning their genetics aren't well represented in the zoo-based population. The lion cub is currently staying behind the scenes until it is deemed big and strong enough to start to explore its habitat, but it is absolutely adorable, and you can see pictures of it on the Fort Worth Zoo social media pages. This next birth is being included because, well, it, it is an important birth, but also because it has a lot of words I think will be fun to say. A male pygmy hippo was born at Diver Kralov Zoo in the Czech Republic, also known as Chechia. The zoo is roughly 75 miles east of Prague. The hiplet has been named Mikolas, and he and his mother, Malaya, are doing quite well together. And you know, this birth is particularly important because pygmy hippo births are a lot less common than I realized, uh, you know, given how much time we spent on the baby at Greensboro Science Center over the last few months. Apparently, pygmy hippo breeding in human care has been a complicated endeavor, uh, particularly due to a lack of males in the population. And yeah, that that that, that does help. Kind of need those. Uh, only a dozen pygmy hippos were born in zoos globally last year, and not all of them survived. 
So a successful birth, and especially a male baby, is really a huge deal. Nazdravid to everyone at the zoo. That, that means cheers. Brevard Zoo in Florida has announced the birth of twin Sulawesi Babarusas. Sulawesi Babarusa is really fun to say. Uh, so far, mom is adjusting to life with the twins quite well, and the hope is the twins will be on exhibit soon. So uh, hopefully you can head to Florida and check these little cuties out. And then the last birth we're going to discuss this week is from the Abilene Zoo, where they have announced the birth of Lyra, a maned wolf pup. Maned wolflet. Lyra was born back on December 18th and is doing incredibly well. And those are your births for the week. But of course, that means we have a couple deaths to discuss. Nothing like uh, last week, which, geez, the episode just kind of felt like an obituary. But um, all right. Japan's oldest polar bear has passed away. Her name was Miyuki, and she was 33 years old at the time of her passing. While polar bears can live to 30, very few survive past the 18-year mark, so 33 is a really impressive number. Keeper showed up to find her lifeless one morning, which came as a surprise as she had not exhibited any signs of illness before her passing, despite her advanced age. Miyuki was not only the oldest polar bear in Japan, but was wildly popular at her home zoo in Kobe City. The zoo has set up tables for flower tributes from her many fans. Sending love to the entire care team at the zoo. The Cincinnati Zoo has said goodbye to Snooplog, the alligator gar who lived at Manatee Springs and often seemed to think he was one of the manatees himself. Snooplog was a beloved animal at the zoo, but one of those animals you kind of had to be in the know to truly take the time to go see and, like, appreciate. He would often seem to want to pose for photos if you tried to take them, and uh, also seem to be somewhat, I don't know, paternal or fraternal, maybe, like kind of brotherly or whatever, in helping new manatees adjust to their time at the facility before heading to Florida for re-release. Snoop will be missed. And the other death I wanted to share this week is a beautiful but heartbreaking story. The Skopje Zoo in Macedonia recently lost a zookeeper named the Riste. He was a keeper that was beloved by guests and the animals he took care of, having an especially deep connection with a giraffe named Floppy, one of the three that he took care of at the zoo. There are actually numerous pictures of them face to face, and it's, it's all very adorable. What makes this story so interesting is that Floppy passed away at the zoo on the same day that Riste died. The necropsy results for Floppy have not been released yet, and to be honest, a lot of the press surrounding this story is either translated poorly into English or just so focused on the fact that these two shared an amazing connection that it seems like Floppy just must have died of a broken heart if you read these stories. Now, I doubt that is true because, you know, science, but it is a beautiful story and has certainly stirred up a lot of feels amongst the people who see this story reported. So uh, yeah, goodbye to Riste and to Floppy. 
And that brings us to our regular Zoo News for the week. And uh, we're going to start off, and it is that time of year again. Valentine's Day is approaching, that time when a young man's fancy turns to love, and when people who feel bitter about love turn to zoos for revenge. More and more facilities are allowing you to make a small donation to name a feeder insect, like a rotary cricket, after an ex, allowing you to live out your revenge fantasy of having that person who hurt you and broke your heart get eaten by a lizard. At least symbolically. Now, this is a trend that I first saw at the Bronx Zoo, which does an annual Name a Roach program. Other zoos have taken it even further. This year, the San Antonio Zoo has announced that you can symbolically name a roach, a rat, or even a veggie after your ex. Even though it's the same end result, the idea of naming a carrot after your ex just doesn't, I don't know, seem to have the same bite to me as a roach or a rat, but... Hey, whatever works. Um, I think this is a really fun way to raise money for the facilities that take part. So, uh, you know, you should look into whether your local zoo does this or check out the Bronx Zoo or San Antonio Zoo. Make a contribution and hey, get the closure you need in the process. It's cheaper than a therapist. Um, Also, as a side note, This is one of those stories that I had multiple people send me this week. As soon as Bronx announced that they were doing the name of Roach thing again this year, multiple people sent it to me. But the funny thing was, I had actually already written it up for Zoo News this week because even though they hadn't announced it, I think this is such a fun, cool, and kind of silly, unique idea. I wanted to remind people of it you know, on my own. I knew the announcement was coming. So uh, it came and people sent it to me and I always appreciate that. But yeah, this one, I don't know, this resonates with me and I don't even, I don't even have any exes I'm like angry at. I just, I think the idea is really fun. The Columbus Zoo has announced that Aurora, the polar bear, is not pregnant. Now, you may remember that we discussed that Aurora had started denning after living with Lee, a male polar bear and a proven breeder, for a while. The team was genuinely hopeful that Aurora might be pregnant, but it seems that is not the case. The good news is that Aurora appears to be healthy and thriving and will soon be reunited with Lee on exhibit. But that does mean that there will not be a polar bear cub at the Columbus Zoo this breeding season. As far as I can tell, and from what I've seen online, that means that in the entire zoo-based polar bear population worldwide, there was only one successful birth this year in the Netherlands. I've talked on here before about how challenging the polar bear population situation is in zoos, and especially in the United States, where Congress has laws preventing the importing of any polar bears into the country, even ones that are found stranded or injured and deemed non-releasable, and even zoo-based polar bears from other countries. Those conditions make every polar bear birth in the States something to be celebrated, and every year like this one, extra challenging for the population. Here's hoping it goes better next year for Aurora. Oh, I'm actually going to break back in here, and uh, there's an update to Aurora's health, although not related to reproduction, that the zoo has put out. So um, they released an update on Aurora, who is 23 years old, uh, and apparently uh, she recently developed a severe limp on her right hind leg. 
She was given pain medication and anesthetized to uh, get an orthopedic exam and x-rays. And um, it looks like uh, this is probably a full or partial cranial cruciate ligament rupture. This would be similar to an ACL in humans, but in animals, especially quadrupeds, we call them CCLs. This type of injury is not uncommon amongst animals, and uh, so far, Aurora is making a speedy recovery, uh, which is really exciting to see because a lame polar bear is never a good thing. Uh, there is the chance that she will develop arthritis in her leg based on this condition, but if so, the team at the zoo does know how to medically manage that. Now, at 23 years old, uh, Aurora is considered geriatric and is past the median life expectancy for female polar bears, but uh, she's in great hands and the team is obviously working very hard to take care of her, so hopefully uh, this is just a little bump in what will become a much longer life. The Cincinnati Zoo has announced that it is officially penguin parade season again. Penguin parades take place on Saturdays, Sundays, and holiday Mondays during the season and are a lot of fun to watch. This announcement does come with a caveat, however. Given that the king penguin population at the zoo is aging, this will be the last year of penguin parades. So if watching penguins waddle around the zoo is something you want to catch, make sure you get to the Cincinnati Zoo for one final year of penguin parades. The Colchester Zoo in the United Kingdom has been a privately owned zoo with a charitable arm for the last 60 years. Now, the zoo is transitioning to become the Colchester Zoological Society, making it a charitable trust. As far as day-to-day -day visitor experiences, this won't have a huge impact on what guests see, unless you consider that the trust will be managing the zoo and thus helping to shape the changes it makes in the future. Becoming a charitable trust should help the zoo weather any potential storms that private ownership might step back from, and should enable that the zoo and the incredible conservation work they do are around for the foreseeable future, no matter what happens. Now, the zoo also owns and manages a wildlife reserve in Africa known as Umfafa. The zoo will be stepping away from managing this private nature reserve. However, before doing so, they are also setting up the Umfafa Charitable Trust in South Africa, which will then run the reserve. They are also working with the government of South Africa to get the lands a protected status so that Umfafa will always remain a natural reserve where animals will be safe and protected. I look forward to seeing what these changes will bring over the next many years. The trust will officially go live on January 1st, 2025. Which, as a side note, really sounds like the future, but is honestly just the start of next year. Crazy to think about. All right, this next one is a little controversial, but it is, uh, it is happening, so I want to talk about it. Um, we recently covered the raid and removal of animals from the Natural Bridge Zoo in Virginia, including what appeared to be lies told about the deaths of animals, the complete lack of proper care for animals at the facility, um, dead animal body parts found in freezers, and, and more really disturbing stuff. Well, the trial to determine the fate of the zoo and the animals that called it home has started. 
And it doesn't appear to be as open and shut as the initial reports about the zoo seemed to be. Five expert witnesses who were not employed by the zoo took the stand to claim that the zoo was a vibrant environment with animals in ideal or near-ideal conditions, diligently cared for by the staff at the zoo. This, you will remember, contrasts wildly with the stories shared by the prosecution, the people who raided the zoo, the people who filed the initial complaints about the zoo, and the reports from former staff at the zoo. It is worth noting that none of the expert witnesses were present at the zoo during the raid or in the time immediately preceding it. In fact, all of the experts came from out of state. The first to speak was Lisa Dedone, a Colorado-based giraffe expert. She was a paid consultant at the zoo who had visited in January, which is after the raid, and set up cameras to monitor the behavior of the giraffes when she wasn't at the zoo. She stated that the giraffes seemed to be in good health and were being taken care of with standards that are, quote, in line with what the zoo community does today. Corey Connolly, a hoofstock expert and veterinarian, spoke about the care the donkeys, llamas, sheep, and even a dog at the zoo received. She stated that while these animals were seized due to parasites, that it is not uncommon for those types of animals to keep a number of parasites, and that the test the state ran only showed that parasites were present, not the scope. In other words, the tests didn't show a problematic number of parasites. William Peritino, an aviculture expert from Florida, had high praise for the enclosures for the parrots, macaws, cockatoos, hornbills, and kookaburra that had been seized. He inspected the zoo about a week and a half before testifying, so again, after all of the animals were seized. Um, similarly, uh, Ken Alfieri, a reptile and amphibian expert based in Massachusetts, lauded the zoo's habitats and called the husbandry techniques at the zoo spectacular in regard to the herps there. The last expert that testified was Peter Brewer, the veterinarian and owner of Southwick's Zoo in Massachusetts. Now, he did not visit the facility in Virginia, but gave his professional opinion based on photographs sent to him. He said that while it was hard to judge based on photographs, he saw nothing out of line based on those photos. Uh, one of the major points the prosecution raised was that all of the animals seemed incredibly stressed during the raid. However, all of the experts testified that the raid itself was likely to cause a huge amount of stress for the animals, so that any stress behaviors that were seen might be due to the raid rather than bad husbandry. It is also worth noting that the zoo was raided before staff was allowed to start their daily routines. As such, any findings of animals not being fed or found in dirty enclosures could be attributed to the fact that the animals had not been cared for that morning because of the raid. And of course there will be poop and no food if you're not allowed to clean and feed those animals. The judge is expected to rule as early as next week on the fate of many of the animals that called the zoo home, and I'll be curious to see what he has to say. I have a lot of thoughts on this, uh, especially having spoken to some staff that had nothing but bad things to say about the facility. But look, at the end of the day, this is how the justice system works in the United States. And I have certainly 
had disgruntled former employees reach out to me about many amazing facilities I have featured on the podcast, trying to tell me that they are horrible places that abuse their animals and such. A few have even tried to get me to publicly attack facilities that I have spent a lot of time at, been behind the scenes at, and know just how amazing they are. So now we wait to see what the judge thinks, and hopefully more concrete information comes out and we can all decide for ourselves what was going on at this zoo, because let's face it, none of us were there. For now, I am skeptical, especially with the infusion of experts that had not been to the zoo at all or only visited after the raid, but um, we shall see what comes out and what the judge ultimately decides. On a much lighter note, have you ever wanted to visit a zoo and wander around without having to see any of those pesky animals or zookeepers that make the experience just so very zooish? Well, now you can. There is a 100-year-old abandoned zoo in Cisco, Texas, which features old ruins and abandoned cages from the 1920s, which have had nature trails blazed through it, so you can now hike the old abandoned zoo. There's even a sign at the start of the hike that says, Old Zoo Nature Trails. So, if you ever happen to find yourself in Cisco, Texas, looking for a fun activity, you can go wander an old zoo. And they won't even kick you out, unlike all the times I try to wander zoos like after hours and stuff. Kidding. Probably. All right, y'all. I'm putting this in stories. I'm putting it in the show notes. Make sure you go and do this. Our friends at Adventure Aquarium need help naming their new octopus. You can go and vote for the name at surveymonkey.com slash r slash octopus 2024. I know, I know, I didn't even need to say it. Go follow the link in my stories or, or you know, in the show notes here, okay? Please consider voting for the name Phantom, which is an awesome name for this octopus because he has some cool scarring that looks like a mask, like, you know, from Phantom of the Opera. So that's kind of cool. Um, and, and just trust me when I say Phantom's the name that we want to get. So we have had a lot of luck with Rasafari people going and voting and, and together as a community getting the names that we want in there. So uh, please go vote for Phantom. Uh, our friends at Adventure Aquarium will appreciate it, I'm sure. And that brings us to... Conservation! Conservation! News time! Oh yeah! All right, let's talk about some incredible news out of Olpegida, an animal sanctuary in Kenya that longtime listeners have heard discussed on the pod numerous times. Olpegida has announced that the black rhino population in Kenya has gone from the brink of extinction in 1984 to quadrupling its size across the country. In Olpegida itself, the population has blossomed from 20 black rhinos in 93 to 171 in the same space now, showing just how effective these reserves are. 171 rhinos is not only an incredible feat, but is also near the maximum population capacity of the park, a problem that is both incredible and concerning, and that is also something that many other parks in Africa are experiencing. As such, the park has teamed up with the Kenya Wildlife Service to announce the move of multiple rhinos to Loisaba Conservancy, meaning that for the first time in 50 years, Loisaba will have a rhino population. This is after the previous population was hunted to extinction back uh, in the day. 
While this is a huge milestone for the black rhino population in Kenya, it also illustrates how much work is still needed to save the species. It is estimated that a population of around 2,000 black rhinos would be sustainable in Kenya, and the current population still sits at just under 1,000 rhinos. And yet many of the 16 parks that have housed and protected rhinos are near capacity. While Luasaba getting rhinos will help alleviate some of these population issues, it's only one extra park. Given that black rhinos are solitary animals and need to roam and have space in order to reproduce, there is a clear need for a lot more land in Kenya to be protected and numerous new parks to open and help save the species before the population can ever get to being considered stable again. Now, I love this story because it is both such a great illustration of how far we have come in saving black rhinos and also how much work still needs to be done. But uh, I'm, I'm confident that that work will get done. All right, now, some sad news about one of the most endangered species in the United States. A North Atlantic right whale calf has been spotted with serious injuries consistent with damage from a boat strike. While impossible to say for sure, it certainly looks like the calf is likely to die from the injuries. This is one of only nine North Atlantic right whale calves that have been spotted this calving season, and is going to go down as the 14th vessel strike to kill a North Atlantic right whale since 2008. Now, while that number might not seem crazy, less than one a year, the North Atlantic right whale population is currently estimated to be under 360, a number that is made worse by the fact that only around 70 of them are believed to be reproductively available females. There are constant legal battles occurring over right whale protections, and the truth is, if they aren't settled soon, we are going to see the extinction of this incredible species in our lifetime. However, there is good news to add to this story. I mentioned that there were uh, nine calves spotted this season so far. Well, uh, since that information came out earlier this week, four new pairs of right whale mothers and calves were spotted just this week alone. So while the population is obviously in huge trouble, there is a silver lining at the end of this story. Now, on the other hand, outdoor cats, man, they aren't good. There is no silver lining to outdoor cats existing. You've heard me talk about this on here time and time again. You even heard Eric of the North Carolina Zoo rant about it as well on a recent episode. This next story is yet another example of the trouble they can cause, but in a different way. A Kentucky lawmaker named Gary Boswell has decided, without consulting a single biologist, that red-tailed and Cooper's hawks are causing too much damage to other animals in Kentucky, so has introduced a bill into the state legislature that would exempt both hawks from state wildlife laws so that pet owners and farmers would be allowed to kill the birds without facing any penalties from the state. Now, Obviously, this law wouldn't circumvent federal protections for the animals, but some laws are just more heavily enforced by states, and the federal government rarely intervenes. For instance, think about all the states that have legalized the distribution and use of marijuana, right? You can walk into well-lit stores and just buy the stuff in those places, despite the fact that is still a federally controlled substance. 
don't don't get me wrong here. I completely support the legalization of weed, and uh, but I just thought it was a good example of how toothless some federal laws can be when states decide to decriminalize something. Anyway, the main reason this bill has been proposed uh, is because one of Gary Boswell's constituents had their outdoor cat snatched by a hawk. And I do have to say that I really feel bad for that person and that cat. I do. For as much as I talk about how indoor cats need to stay indoor cats, and as much as it frustrates me that people don't know better, in many cases, that's the truth. The people don't know better. And I truly believe most people that let their cats have outdoor time think they are doing what is best for the animal. It's one thing that makes the messaging around this so hard, and one reason I repeat it so often. But at the end of the day, this lawmaker has proposed a bill that would protect an invasive species against a native species. And that's just not something that biologists think is a good idea. Hopefully the law doesn't pass, and if it does, hopefully the federal protections around hawks will stop it from having much of an impact. But for now, this is something that is very much worth keeping an eye on. All right, y'all, and now it is time for a deep, deep dive into avian influenza. All right, so avian influenza, bird flu, H5N1. This is a problematic disease that has been traveling around the globe for the last few years. It has led to the deaths of a huge number of birds, transferred over to numerous mammal species, led to closures of aviaries and birds in human care being kept indoors as the disease travels through areas with zoos, and generally just been a big pain in the butt. However, the problem has been overshadowed globally by a little disease called covid so in recently discussing the topic on this podcast, I mentioned that scientists are becoming more concerned about the prolonged effects of H5N1, and uh, now the WCS is getting involved. WCS has compiled data about the disease and sent out an urgent message to world leaders to start to take it more seriously. Some interesting info from the release. The current outbreak of avian influenza has infected over 150 wild and domestic avian species around the globe. It has also infected dozens of mammalian species. Now, as far as the birds are concerned, the disease has wiped hundreds of millions of birds off the planet, though it is impossible to know the exact number. I've shared various stories over the years of the effect on some mammals, but to give you the full picture, there are records of H5N1 infecting foxes, pumas, skunks, black bears, brown bears, and other species. There have also been major outbreaks at farms, devastating chicken farms and mink farms. Over 700 Caspian seals, an endangered species, died off when the disease got into their population in 2023. Perhaps the, the most insane visual of all of this is that more than 95% of southern elephant seal pups born along the Patagonia coastline in 2023 died from avian influenza, a stark contrast from just the year before when 18,000 pups were born and successfully weaned. 
There were parts of the coastline that were literally just covered in the decaying bodies of southern elephant seal pups, which, I mean, oh, that is just so disturbing. So where did all of this come from? Well, the original disease, H5N1, was discovered in domestic waterfowl in China in 1996. Bird flu is spread through droplets and feces-borne infections, and is considered highly transmissible. The disease was around through 96 and 97, mostly in domestic poultry. From the initial poultry outbreaks in 1996, 18 cases transferred to humans, with six of the people dying. By the time the outbreak had run its course, 860 people were infected, with more than half of them dying. And how did it run its course? In December of that year, veterinary authorities slaughtered all of the poultry in farms where outbreaks had been detected, and a temporary ban on importing poultry was put into place. The disease appeared to be stopped by these methods, and there was little talk of it crossing into the wild bird populations. Over the next few years, uh, there were occasional small H5N1 occurrences around the globe, but they were quickly contained using the methods I just discussed, and it seemed to many as though the major threat had passed. That is until 2003, when H5N1 returned with a vengeance in China and in other Asian countries. At the time, the disease was still poultry-based, only showing up at chicken farms and in similar places. The various nations involved tried to contain the outbreak, but with a focus on keeping the economy and trade going, uh, they didn't do what was necessary to squash the disease. When the outbreaks became so bad that the governments finally relented and started killing off the birds all the way in 2005, so two years into this thing, it was too late. The disease had mutated and was documented having crossed into wild avian species for the first time. The wild birds that got H5N1 not only started to get sick and die, but also transported the disease with them as they traveled. As such, the disease transferred to poultry in Africa, the Middle East, and even parts of Europe. During all of this travel and transfer, the disease continued to mutate, creating multiple genotypes with slightly different characteristics. As had happened before, the outbreak also crossed over to humans, though in smaller numbers, with about 300 humans infected and roughly 175 of those humans dying, um, despite the fact that it had traveled to far more areas and mutated. So good, good news, relatively speaking, for humans, bad news overall for, for the disease. Uh, tens of millions of birds died, both in the slaughter of poultry animals and in the wild bird population. Scientists around the globe started to work on cures and vaccines for the disease, but were often hampered due to governments being unwilling to share information with each other, along with the fact that the disease kept mutating. However, by the end of 2008, the bird flu seemed to have mostly run its course. Over the next few years, occasional outbreaks would be found, but they would be isolated, the poultry animals involved would be slaughtered, a few humans would die, and then everything would just fade into the background again. All of that changed with the next major outbreak in 2014. Two of the subtypes of the virus, H5N6 and H5N8, both had major outbreaks in Asia, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and, for the first time in large numbers, North America. 
the U.S. poultry industry uh, was affected during this outbreak for the first time. These versions of the disease were actually less likely to cross over into humans. For instance, between 2014 and 2016, 164 people were known to be exposed to the disease in the United States, and not one of them was infected. This was probably helped by the fact that the CDC finally got involved with bird flu and uh, recommended that people who work with poultry when there's bird flu going around spend as little time as possible around the animals and also wear PPE. The CDC shared this information globally, which may be one of the reasons the outbreak was mostly contained amongst humans around the world. This outbreak continued into 2016 when a mutated form of the disease made news by transferring over to domestic cats. A cat shelter in New York City experienced a massive outbreak, including one human staff member catching the disease but recovering from it. In total, over 350 domestic cats were reported to catch bird flu, but the human at the shelter was the only person who caught it from a feline. There was a huge scare at this time that the transfer of the disease to these cats in New York City might mean that the disease would end up being a major issue for cat species in general, but this never fully materialized. In 2017, the situation in Asia got worse, and by the end of 2017, 688 humans had been infected with one form or another of avian influenza, with the death toll remaining just slightly above 50%. Yet again, countries took small steps to stop outbreaks when able, but the thing that ended the main outbreak during this time was just, it petered out on its own. Over the next few years, there would be no major outbreaks until the current one, but the disease never really goes away. It always shows up in some place, often in poultry farms, and then the birds at the farm are slaughtered and, you know, it fades away. Until it doesn't. And, and that is what is happening now and has been happening over the last few years. The outbreak this time has been mostly the H5N1 strain, the original strain of the disease, though with several mutations, but not enough to each get their own name unless you're really nerdy and get into genotypes and stuff. This is the version of the disease that has been the most successful in transferring to mammals, including humans, though the infection rate is still incredibly low. Not only has the disease been traveling around the globe and hitting especially hard in the U.S. and Canada, where this particular outbreak of it first started, but it has spread in recent years beyond where the older outbreaks of the disease happened, in large part because migratory habits of birds have changed due to climate change. This is easily the worst bird flu breakout in the history of the globe, and by far the worst experience the United States has had with the disease. And due to the global nature of the outbreak, there is literally no reason to believe that this outbreak will fade away like the previous ones did. It is infecting new areas, and one of the mutated genes seems to make it even more likely to spread amongst wild birds than it was, you know, in the past. And then those birds continue to migrate and take the disease with them, and then poultry farms get infected and, and all those things. Now, as I mentioned at the top of this deep dive, world governments haven't really done much about the issue because they are too busy dealing with COVID and 
you know, also just being dumb in a lot of ways. Um, but I get the COVID thing, you know, it, it, it has shown to be much more of a problem in humans. Um, but hopefully the steps the WCS is taking to get global leaders to care about this issue work out. And uh, they're finally able to put a stop to this disease. But the truth is, there isn't really a ton of hope for that at this time. Even if we are able to develop a vaccine, H5N1 is so widely spread amongst wild birds now that delivering the vaccine to them seems all but impossible. H5N1 mutates very quickly, so even if a distribution system to all wild birds could be created, unless it was a super fast one, the disease might actually evolve to fight the vaccine before all birds could be vaccinated. Or at least until enough birds could be vaccinated to reach herd immunity. I guess it would be flock immunity in this case. Anyway, most of the experts I have spoken to just think that avian influenza is here to stay now. And a lot of zoos have accepted this as at least the current reality, uh, coming up with policies and procedures to follow whenever the disease is found within a certain mile radius of the facility, and then going back to normal bird handling and displaying when the disease seems to have migrated from the area. So... We shall ultimately see what happens with this, uh, and uh, who knows, maybe if we are able to get support from governments around the world, the disease might yet be stopped. But um, for now, only time will tell. But that's what's going on, and that's why when you hear me talk about H5N1 or the, the transfer to mammals or any of that stuff, why it's such an interesting topic and and why it's kind of getting into uncharted territory, so... Uh, yeah, we'll see what's happening. But I, I find all of this to be absolutely fascinating, and I, I hope that you didn't fall asleep. Now, as a postscript to this, I know a lot of you come here to laugh as well as to learn, and that was a lot of learning. But I'll end this deep dive and this segment with something that should make you laugh. As I was doing this research, I told Zoe about it. And as I said it, I accidentally said, Alien Influenza. And if that isn't silly enough, I then started singing, Alien Influenza, a disease from the stars. Alien Influenza, don't drive poultry around in your cars. It must be such a joy living with me. Animal, animal, animal holidays. Animal, animal, animal holidays. All right, we're skipping other news this week because I went so long on that deep dive. Uh, but your animal holidays for the week. It is January, which means still no animal month. Boo! Uh, but we do have a couple of animal holidays this week. January 20th is Penguin Awareness Day. January 21st is Squirrel Appreciation Day. So make sure you tell those squirrels that you see that you love them. The 24th is the International Day of Education, which, I mean, hey, we can educate about animals, so we'll, we'll count that one. And the 25th is Moose Day. Happy Moose Day, y'all. And those are your animal holidays for the week. All right, there you have it, folks. Uh, Rasafari Zoo News is done for another week. I'd like to say thank you to all of my patrons, especially my red panda-level patrons, Dr. Laura Shank, Dr. Stephen Williamson, Barbara Bennett, and Jenny Owens. 
Don't forget that you can support the pod for as little as $3 a month by going to patreon.com slash rasafari and getting access to some cool extra audio, some neat bonus episodes, more access to me, all that good stuff. I'd also like to say thank you to everyone who contributed this week, including Anya Keen, Colleen Lenahan, Kim Cooley-Croninger, Carrie Kirkpatrick, Kevin Williams, Kay Malensky, Ali Malensky, the Malenskys. Ooh. I'm such a dork. Nathan Booten, Marianne Rossi, Liz Dunlevy, Emily Rockbuck, Dr. Zoe Rossi, Dr. Laura Shank, Jay Meredith, Sam Weber, Matt Patford, and Jacob Zinn. And remember, y'all, the words, newsy credits backwards. Our Steider Keys one. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. Brevard Zoo has announced the birth of twin Sulawesi Babarusa twins. Twin twins. Good job, John.